Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Rob, welcome to the War Room. Ryan, good to be here. Okay, I was telling you offline, uh, I'll bring it in right now. I came across your program during the George Floyd trial as probably most people in the world were watching that trial. Um, and you, you, you watch shows like the practice or whatever it is. And you go, Oh man, this is really exciting. Then you go watch a real trial and you're like objection, motion, sidebar, whatever. And you're like, oh, okay, what's going on here? Um, and so you're, I found your program to be a very good um, way to kind of unpack what's happened. Whereas if you turn on, I don't know who was covering it, but whoever it was, they had a three-minute clip from a lawyer, and it's just back and forth. It's just really just kind of back and forth, not not really trying to help a dummy like me understand it. So, A, maybe give us a little bit of your background, um, and then B, why did you launch the show? Yeah, thank you, Ryan. So it was an experience. I remember the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin trial like it was yesterday, and it was a couple of years ago now that I think back about it. But I am a criminal defense attorney, and I have been practicing law since 2013. I'm licensed in Arizona and California. And I think like many people, you know, I sort of was experimenting with a lot of things when we started our law firm back in 2014. And I've been practicing criminal defense law. That's all we did. I'll tell you a little bit more about my transition out of the law firm later, potentially. But we were trying to figure out how to grow a business and how to run a business and how to provide value and how to create content. And kind of the same story that we had with a lot of, you know, a lot of other small business owners have had. How do you grow a business? And, you know, you're sort of flailing around trying to figure out what to do. And so when, when COVID came, I had been doing a bunch of public speaking to try to grow our law firm and to try to, you know, get out there in the community. I was doing these talks about uh, recovery and sobriety at different treatment centers, something that's been very important to me. And when COVID hit, we all started to lock down and I realized that a lot of my public speaking career as a defense attorney was going to go bye-bye. And so I decided I needed to go online pretty quickly. And I started to experiment with some different formats, tried a bunch of content and started to then, uh, after creating a ton of about 450 criminal law, legal focused videos, I decided to start commenting and talking about some of the public interest cases that were out there. And I read a book called Your Stand is Your Brand by a guy called Patrick Tempo, and it sort of inspired me to do a lot of the same things I was already doing in the courtroom, but a little bit more publicly. You know, I would be representing clients in my law firm. Our attorneys would be representing clients in court, sort of boots on the ground every day fighting for these things. And I would see in the news a lot of other trials, a lot of other topical things, and I started to see that there were injustices taking place, you know, obviously in those cases as well. And so it became, uh, it, it became obvious that I needed to start to figure out how to, how to have impact in that space as well. And so COVID came about in March when Trump declared the national emergency, decided to start a show called Watching the Watchers. And everything kind of, you know, culminated in the show that was really focused on police, prosecutors, and politicians. And so now it's matured into a daily live stream that we do every day where we focus on law and politics and a lot of the topical things really from a legal perspective. And Derek Chauvin was really one of the first cases that came across the, the, the line when I was just getting started. And 
it was a unique experience because we had the video that we all saw and we all had sort of our initial reactions. But as the trial matured, as the case progressed and we got to see a lot of the discovery and we started to go through the coroner's report and we started to look at all of the evidence, uh, it became one of those cases that I, you know, as a, as a sort of born and bred defense attorney, I decided we needed to really focus on this. And so we started taking a deeper dive approach. And really by the end of the trial, we were, you know, defending Derek Chauvin because we saw what a lot of these reports showed. And I didn't think that the actual cause of death was asphyxiation, which would, would, would have been caused by, you know, the knee on the back. I think that the coroner, the state's own witness came out and talked all about, you know, his heart basically giving out arterial sclerosis and clogged arteries. And there were, uh, you know, high levels of drugs in his system and so on and so forth. And so my perspective on this was, yeah, the video was very troubling indeed. And a big part of my channel had been sort of born out of focusing and highlighting problems with police, prosecutors, and politicians, as I mentioned. But then we sort of fast forward and I was defending Derek Chauvin now. You know, mm -hmm. now I'm saying this guy is getting a dog pile. He's getting sort of beaten up by the entire country. And we had to really, um, you know, I had to really sort of mature a bit as a content creator, as somebody who was focusing on these things, because I was sort of doing this all on display and learning in public, so to speak. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. And I think it, I think from there, you know, we just have started to grow and we've been covering a lot of other topical cases and making many of the same arguments that it's about due process and equal protection and the presumption of innocence. And our government is, you know, is a big bureaucracy that oftentimes mm -hmm. will trample all over those rights. And we've got to hold the line on those things. So very long introduction there, but thank you for letting me go on and on. No, it was great because the, the Chauvin, I, I, rem I remember where I was when I watched that video and being just completely like, oh my gosh, yeah. uh, we could talk about that in depth in some, but you touched on something there that that's as a society, we're trying to figure out how to deal with. And so you have the police body cam footage that we're getting to see now on a more regular basis. And I'm thankful for that because we need that as someone who has a very high bar um, as a non-legal person, but a very high bar for what I think should constitute a conviction. Um, I want evidence. I want to understand the evidence, but, but video evidence is only part of the puzzle, right? So you only have the first frame through the last frame and only what's in view of that frame. And I don't really have a strong stance on um, the, the Chauvin stuff particularly, but, but that's a good example of you watch this video and anyone to watch that, is right to think this man murdered that man. I have no problem with that at all. But but that's not whether it's that video or any other video. That's just not the whole story. And so we we've, we've we've been able to see more as a society, but now we've got to figure out how to deal with unfortunately that's only one part of the story. Now I guess there are some cases where the video does show the whole thing, but I remember during the covid protests you would see maybe the 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 protesters break out and riot or the police fire uh, a weapon or whatever. And the problem is you didn't know what happened three seconds before. And so all you saw was the beginning of the outrage from your perspective, not the whole thing. So how hard is it to present this to people from a jury standpoint, um, knowing how hard it is just as a citizen to watch this and, and emotions it invokes in me? It's a great question. And it is sort of the eternal battle in criminal law. You know, we're 
playing in two different arenas many times. And, you know, the first one that most criminal defendants go through, right, you know, you or I, somebody's charged with the DUI or it's a generic type of criminal charge, you know, it's not going to be the crime of the century. It's not going to be splattered all over national news for, you know, seven months out of the year. And so most of the time, you know, those things kind of are, are actually quite routine. You know, they're pretty mechanical in many ways. And then you start thinking about when you dive in, you know, you think, okay, a DUI case out of Scottsdale, Arizona, what kind of jurors are there? Are they conservative jurors or liberal jurors? And you sort of do the demographics game, right? And there's, there's, you know, there's a science to that. And there's a lot of attorneys who will say that you should do jury selection a certain way. There are other lawyers who just say, well, just pick the jury. You know, I knew one lawyer who said, I don't care. I don't do jury selection at all. I just sort of will just take what they give me and I'll just go. Uh, and that, you know, I mean, he was a very good lawyer. He's excellent at it. So, you know, you can go that route. But what I what I've seen with Derek Chauvin in a lot more of these cases, and I, I don't think this is a new phenomenon, but maybe the the prevalence of cell phones everywhere, the prevalence of social media, everything is instantly uploaded. People are live streaming all over the place. You know, it's just sort of ubiquitous now. It's everywhere. And so when you have a case like Derek Chauvin, you know, it's very hard to or, or any one of these high profile cases, it's very hard to separate the court of law from the court of public opinion. And the court of public opinion is, is, a, is a whole different arena, right? I mean, it's not even the same game at, at, at all. And with Derek Chauvin, it becomes the process of having to almost redefine a narrative that has already been set, right? I mean, for months and months and months before the trial ever even took place, before the jurors were ever even impaneled, you know, there is a process by which they are being beaten up every day in the media with the story, with the news, with the headlines. And then when they get called into the jury, you know, they're asked questions and the judges try to vet them and they say, have you heard about this case? Or, you know, are you going to be biased? Or can you be fair and impartial with all of this, you know, all of this flying around you? And they all say, yeah, sure. Of course they can. Sure they can. And I believe them, right? I believe that these are good people and good jurors and that they want to be good civic uh, you know, civil servants and so on. But they're also sort of the victim of the societal pressure. And if you remember in a Derek Chauvin case or any one of these cases, whether it's, you know, Glenn Maxwell, uh, we've covered, you know, Steve Bannon, he got sort of a dogpile on him. Every time there's this dogpile, it, it, and, and you also have a jurisdictional problem, right? Some of these cases are taking place in just really bad jurisdictions where the demographics and the jurors are also going to be bad for this particular defendant. So you've got all these different layers and people want answers, right? And you've got the public sort of demanding blood, you know, in Derek Chauvin's case, he almost became the, the scapegoat for several hundred years of Americans, uh, America's racism, right? I mean, it was like going to be just all on the back of this one dude at the end of this trial. And it was, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very hard, I think, to, to come back from that. We covered the Derek Chauvin trial at length. I made several comments throughout the trial. I mean, we went through the body cameras, you know, one by one. Mm -hmm. I think that there was very clear evidence of reasonable doubt about the cause of death, right? And that's the burden of proof here. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. We have to get over that. It doesn't matter if the video was bad. It doesn't matter if, uh, you know, Derek Chauvin is a jerk, Does, you know, any of those other things. Sure. It's, a, it's about that standard. And there was evidence about, heart problems. There was evidence about drug problems in the body camera footage. There was evidence that he was complaining about not being able to breathe before he was even on the ground. Okay. He was in the back of the car, back of the squad police car, and he was complaining about breathing. So, it, you know, all of that, in my mind, as a defense attorney, 
meets that beyond a reasonable doubt standard. But mm -hmm. when you when you sort of put that on a scale, you know, that versus the outrage of 200 million Americans and every single mm -hmm. media entity and every single journalist every day, mm -hmm. I can't imagine being a juror on there and having, you know, having the strength to go against that grain. I think it's basically an impossible ask. So even though we have kind of this fiction that we have this fair and impartial jury system and, and, you know, and process, you know, I mean, you're looking, it's like a, it's like a situation that's just unwinnable. And I think that's a real travesty for our justice system. Yeah. The, the, the thing that I remember and, and curious how you would think about this issue there was a lot of narrative about him saying he couldn't breathe, which obviously we all heard. Okay. And so if I remember correctly, there's four cops or five cops roughly there. Um, I am not going to argue that because someone in handcuffs says they can't breathe, the officer should stop what he's doing and make sure that they can breathe because people in handcuffs have lied before. Okay. So um, I, and, and that, that kind of got swept under the rug. Like, well, he was saying he couldn't breathe. So therefore it's like, well, I'm not sure what the response should be. The, the issue, just on some level, and I'm, again, we don't have to think about this particular case, but just thinking through like how we think through this issue is there was a lot of other officers at some point that could have just gave a glance over the shoulder like, oh, hey, listen, it, it appears now that, that there's no there's no chance of him faking it. It does look as if he's passed out or or, or not. And so how do you – should to me, the question that you're talking about is – we should have a, I almost say a hierarchy of, of ethics or, or morality that we, we think about these issues. And so when you look at this, on some level, I can't say because someone's in cuffs and they can't breathe, the officer should, should, officer should stop. They could be lying. On the other hand, that should be weighed into an equation. And again, apart from Chauvin, whether he's innocent or guilty or not, just how do you think about that as a defense attorney and how to unpack that type of evidence? Yeah, it's a very complicated issue. And I think that, you know, I don't know that there's a, a good answer that, you know, that, that solves the problem. I think this is something that we as a society are going to be debating for a long time. And when I, when I talk about this, I describe it almost as a pendulum that swings sort of mm -hmm. uh, both directions that goes over the arc of, you know, maybe 30 years or, or, you know, several generations, but it's kind of swinging back and forth. And we've observed this in recent American history, but you remember back in the, back in the eighties and nineties, there was, you know, sort of the crime wave. And we saw this, this passing of a bunch of crime bills. In fact, Joe Biden was responsible for many of these 1984, 1986, 1988. I get all the years confused. There was a bunch of them, you know, three of them back to back. And then there was the big, big, big sort of 1994 crime bill. And we have all of these, you know, three strikes rules and all this stuff sort of came out of it, out of that generation. And that was when you know, the pendulum was swinging back. There was a lot of, uh, you know, crime. There was a lot of demand for law enforcement. And so the pendulum sort of swung that way. And, you know, out of that era, you get a lot of the problems that we see in our, in our current society. We see a lot, you know, I have a lot of issues with three strikes rules and sort of all the mandatory sentencing that we see for drug crimes. And I think that we're often trying to punish the pain out of people. And so there are problems with being on that far end of the spectrum. But then the pendulum swings back the other way, right? And we saw that, I think, really sort of climax and crest in the 2020s, really, with sort of the summer of love, all the riots. We had, you know, the protests that were taking place out of Minnesota. We had Vice President Kamala Harris, you know, posting on Twitter that she was going to support people getting released out on bail. And so we, we saw this massive defund the police movement and this, and this BLM movement that really sort of shifted the pendulum the other direction. 
And now, right, it, it, we, we are sort of now dealing with some of the consequences of that. So all these people saying, you know, police are bad and all cops are bad. ACAB was the big, you know, phrase and they should all be defunded and so on. And now, right, the, the pendulum swang pretty hard. And now we're in 2023. And now we're dealing with the consequences of that again. So I think the pendulum will swing back more towards more enforcement. I think you're already seeing some of that language change uh, with, you know, with the current administration talking about, you know, refunding the police. And we never, oh, we never said that stuff. And then it all sort of, you know, the pendulum will swing back. And so as we go through this cycle, and it's, I think it's just, you know, going to keep going on and on and on. It's kind of a normal thing for our society to try to figure out where the right balance is. But we are asking ourselves about, where can we reform the system? Where can there be improvements? And, you know, I, I don't think that I have a one size fits all solution. I can't tell, you know, society that if we have civilian oversight boards for our law enforcement agencies, that's going to be the one size fits all solution or something right. like that. But, but I do think, you know, in my experience, uh, I've, you know, I've been a defense attorney for a long time, ran a very successful law firm here in Arizona. I just exited that recently about three weeks ago. And so, yeah, thank you. And so we're we're doing this type of work full time now, but I've had the pleasure of working with many amazing officers, many amazing prosecutors and great judges. Also a lot of bad ones too, you know, really a lot of bad ones. And when I, when I identify, you know, when I try to boil the problem down, right, I think, I think it's a lot of the same symptoms that we see elsewhere in our government. It's all related back to big bureaucracies, you know, very little skin in the game, very little accountability, no real ramifications for consequences. We have sort of cultures where the, the bad apples are allowed to just move around departments and, you know, they're sort of government employees. So it's really difficult to get rid of them. They've got qualified immunity. So sort of institutionally, there's a lot of different checkboxes that I could say might help improve the system, but mm-hmm. I don't think there's any, you know, one silver bullet. Yeah. And I suspect that most Americans, if they sat down and talked about it for any length of time, could reasonably understand the complexities here and then be aware that it's hard to determine on a case by case or make a law that's passing and and stuff gets so sensationalized that in the moment it's hard to say, okay, um, as you mentioned, the, the two, 300 years of, of, of oppression and racism being taken out of Chauvin on one hand, you want to say, if he's guilty, let's lock him up to whatever the law says and whatever that is. Okay. On the other hand, and this is what gets becomes tough is you say, okay, if a group has been mistreated, then the way to correct that is to make sure this person gets the proper treatment under the law so that we can enforce that later on, which might mean that this bad guy goes free on a technicality or some kind of crazy thing or, or, or high burden of proof or whatever it is. And that's that's really hard, I think, for us to grasp. But the correction sometimes is simply to uphold the law to a high right. standard equally to all groups. So it's not saying that we want to diminish what has happened. It's saying that, well, to fix it, we actually have to do the things that we're supposed to do, which means, yes, all these problems are true, but moving forward, we, we have to do it, which is not going to be pretty. I agree completely. I think it's a brilliant point. You know, I, I wasn't happy with what I saw with Derek Chauvin, right? We keep going back. This is a good example of sure. sort of a, a, a bigger systemic thing. I wasn't happy with what I saw. I didn't think that his, his treatment of George or, or really the whole situation was a good situation. I'm not mm-hmm. endorsing that situation in any way, shape or form. But I think that when you look at the facts of the law, it sort of leads you to, to come to a, a difficult conclusion, which mm-hmm. is that there was reasonable doubt there. And the reason why that reasonable doubt standard is so important, it's not, it has, you know, it's, it, yes, it's important to Derek Chauvin in that particular case, 
but it's way bigger than that, right? If you can just have a system where you can just dogpile on somebody and convict them right. without, you know, without really, really making sure that everything meets that standard, if you want to take this back to race, okay, well, there there will be other opportunities and probably a lot of other opportunities for let's say African-American, black, brown, white, whatever, other defendants in very similar situations to have their protection of the burden of proof and that reasonable doubt standard also right. thrown in the garbage, right. right? And they don't have the national media, the spotlight, people like you and me talking about their cases, right? Mm -hmm. They just get thrown into the, into the dumpster in the gears of our justice system and they're forgotten about. So the, the presumption of innocent standard, the reasonable doubt standard, Yes, it's to protect guys like Derek Chauvin, but more importantly, it's to protect the people who don't have that that sort of scrutiny on their cases because, you know, and the same critics of the Derek Chauvin case, if they're the if, if it's the same group of people who are complaining or, or, or you know, emphasizing things like systemic racism, well, mm -hmm. then those systems will also be exploiting the watering down of the beyond a reasonable doubt standard. Right. That's, That's right. why we can't we got to hold a line on it. It is tough because it, it feels as if you're arguing for something that you're not, and you're simply saying, um, I mean, I, I've made this no bones about it. I think that rapists should face capital punishment. I have a very, but I have a very high standard for how do you get a rapist and stuff like that. But I don't take it lightly because sure. I've had people and she's like, oh, men take rape, rape lightly. No, 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 no. I take it as seriously as you can. Now I take, but I also take the burden of proof quite seriously. But that means that it's, it's, it becomes now it's it's a little bit more messy um, because of the high burden of proof that that I think that should be upon. That, but the consequences also are high. And so it, it just becomes um, where it, it feels like to try to nuance things out, you're, you're pitted as one side or the other. And it's like, no, 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 I'm not. I mean, we get some yeah. other cases I want to, I want to get into that, that'll kind of highlight this. But it, it is it is a frustrating thing that how the media kind of pits one side, pits you on the other side. It's like, well, the long-term ramifications of what you guys are talking about are quite detrimental to the argument that you're making now. And either you're too stupid to see that or you're ignoring it for, for clicks or whatever. But it, it's disgusting, to be quite honest with you, just kind of how some of this stuff is framed. I agree. I, th I actually think it's very, very problematic for our justice system. If we're if we're going to start prosecuting people and, you know, we could go into all of the J6 cases, you know, if if we wanted to really use an example where you have a whole group of people that are being marginalized and, in my opinion, overly prosecuted basically on the pretext of a political narrative, right? I think there was some criminality that took place there, of course. But my point is, you know, it's almost as though the justice system is becoming weaponized and overtly politicized where we're, we're now forming select committees to go prosecute, you know, entire contingents of the country. And I'm not okay with that in either direction, right? I happen to right. be somebody who's more conservative and on the right, but I would not be okay, right? If, if any Republican candidate came out and said, we're going to start uh, prosecuting uh, you know, these these giant groups of people with real, real, real limited evidence I have a very big problem with that because it's about those standards, it's not about the politics. Well, the episode that's being released on the day that we're recording this um, is with a historian um, talking about the years 1917 to 1921. And he talked about there was a thousand ish Americans that were put in jail for criticizing the war, <laughs> for criticizing the war. So think about that. And and, and so, yeah, there there is a very scary reality that that that's not a right or left issue it's very much a just if you think that this is a right we should have um how quickly right. those rights can be evaporated under the pretense of war or whatever else it might be right and it's not even as though you need to be directly involved in any criminality all you have to do is be in close proximity send some text messages send some emails 
be in the you know right chat forum or something mm-hmm. like that and you know the government the fbi the doj they just they gobble all of that speech up and they label you and categorize you and in some cases censor you and in some cases prosecute you for doing stuff that in my opinion is is perfectly constitutional legal you're allowed to question your government you're allowed to put forth alternative theories about outcomes of certain events it's all part of america and the fact that they're trying to you know sort of eat around the margins on this thing is it's going to damage the entire country our justice system all of the institutions because they're all sort of predicated on the ability to have that free speech and that free exercise and and due process all of those foundations man they're critical to everything would you agree it's a crime against humanity that we can't lie to a federal agent in the U.S.? We can't lie to a federal agent in the yeah. United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's a little hyper- hyperbolic. I get it. It's yeah. a very sensitive point for me, though, when you talk about these issues, because when you think about um, some of the, 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 the things that can happen when you get a date wrong or you do willfully lie to a federal agent, um, the the fire that can rain down upon you is 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 quite scary, which puts you as a citizen in a spot that you should never talk to a federal agent. Now think yeah. about that, like how how troubling that is. It is a very interesting sort of development that I think has been getting worse and worse as the country sort of evolves. So you know, you think about you watch the Hollywood movies or the TV shows, and you think about your right to remain silent and. And all of these different constitutional protections that are in place to make sure that our rights are adhered to. And as case law progresses, as the Supreme Court hears more stories, as sort of government gets bigger, as we have more Patriot Acts, as we have more domestic uh, domestic homegrown violent extremist organizations at the DOJ and the FBI, you know, all of these agencies are coming up and they're all just sort of eating around the margins at at our freedoms and our liberties. And so, you know, even that sort of example you gave us, right? I understand the the concept of not lying to a federal agent, but I also I also recognize the the exploitation of all of these laws for process crimes, right? Give us this or give us that. If you say anything, they can almost take your no as a yes and then turn that into a crime. I mean, it's really really amazing what they can do. So, what do you do? You just remain silent. Well, the Supreme Court has also basically said that you're you're just sitting there remaining silent is also not enough to invoke your right to remain silent, right? So you have to actually affirmatively invoke your right to right. remain silent now. And so Which is really weird, know, by the way. Like, it is weird. Yeah, it's weird. I can't just sit here. I've got to <laughs> Yeah. You got to like affirmatively invoke it and there's all these nuances sure. and there's different things that you can say, okay? So even as a defense attorney, you know, there's questions about uh, you know, one of the questions I get asked is sort of what, are, you know, what are the three things you should do? Or, or I have this sort of t- this one, two, three rule of things that people should do. And so, you know, there's there's a, a difference between should I say I invoke my right to remain silent? Even if you say that they could, you know, they maybe they could manipulate that to say that you were implying that you, you did something. So, right. Mm-hmm. The better strategy is say, I just want a lawyer. I want a lawyer. I want a lawyer. So don't even talk about silence. Right. So my point is, it's so complicated. There are so many laws on the books. We have U.S. Code, Code of Federal Regulations. You've got all your local state statutes. You've got all of the sort of unwritten rules that they're all you know, using on Twitter and all of these other platforms. So you know, as a free people, we, 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 really, we really have a lot of potentials to step in a minefield and be prosecuted for something. And as the line continues to move, you know, uh, just a couple of years ago, we heard a lot less about misinformation and disinformation. 
and you know how that can lead to now what they call stochastic terrorism and you say something mm -hmm. which causes somebody else to do something and now you're a terrorist for it and you know the the justice system is going to have to navigate all of these developments and all of these changes but but my line my perspective is that it doesn't matter who the defendant is it doesn't really matter what the issue is what the charges are there are certain lines that we just we can't cross and so that's really what we spent a lot of time covering yeah well i think if you look at the line to the federal agent we had on a former FBI guy a while back, and he goes, you know, we really used to use that to kind of trump up a charge. I, I don't want to misquote him, but some, basically we had six six charges on a mob guy. We said, we'll drop this one because you lied to us about where you were last yeah. Thursday night. And now they're actually using it proactively. Like, well, yeah, that's the problem. Like that is that is the problem is that, you know, you have the ability to to get someone for lying. First off, if we're going to say lying's a crime, then all politicians should be held to that standard. Like that's right. that bar none. Let's just start there. They're not held to that standard uh, in public speech, at least. Um, and then you, you, there's questions about freedom of speech and willing to challenge the government and protest the government. And what does that actually entail? And do you have to be 100% truthful? You know, there's in you can spend hours on propaganda the government has done and lied and manipulated, and they're not held to that standard. And so it's impossible from my perspective to say that the citizens, therefore, must be held to this unbelievable, unbelievably right. rigid, rigid standard uh, when they interact with the, the federal government. Right. And they can lie to us, right? They yeah. and, and the oh, federal yeah. agents can directly lie to you. They can sit there in an interrogation room and say, oh, no, we've got your buddy next door. He told us you did everything and uh, they don't have your buddy and he's not next door and you didn't do anything. And they can do that. And then you can make an admission to something else, maybe. And then they can, boom, prosecute you for that crime. So, you know, our government is constantly, in my opinion, dishonest with us, constantly lying to us. And it's an adversarial relationship that they get to sort of exploit for many, you know, un unassuming citizens who, um, oh, I'm here. I'm going to tell you the truth and I'm going to do all this stuff. And the government pretends they're your best friend. And meanwhile, they're just, you know, since, since taking you advantage since of your, you riled up. <laughs> One yeah, more is your, they can break the law and then find out later that it was, oh, sorry, the Supreme Court said you broke the law. No big deal. Go back to the way it was. If you break the law, so it, 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 it's, 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 it's that hypocrisy that, that I see that, that drives me crazy. But we can spend six hours on that. I, I, I want to, I want to move on. <laughs> we could, yeah. I'll let you add anything else, but it's, that's the libertarian in me coming out. It's, it's just, it's just, it's just my goat. Um, one of the things that I did want to ask you about was during the Rittenhouse trial, and I, and you, yes. I'm sure you talked about this, I don't remember your comments at the time, there was a moment to where the prosecutor asked a question that they were arguing violated his Fifth Amendment. Um, and, and I remember going, wow, I never would have thought that question violated. It was, um, do you remember the question at hand? I, I know I should have sent this over to you. The, he asked a question and the defense attorney hopped up, called for a mistrial right then. And I was like, oh, dang, that was that was kind of. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see that coming um, based upon the question he was asked in the, the, the larger question, I guess I'm more concerned with is how concerned as citizens should we be that prosecutors are asking questions that are pushing the boundary or overstepping the boundary and defense attorneys, because they might be a public, public defender, they don't have time or they're, they're not getting the same resources, aren't able to catch some of the tactics and tricks that prosecutors are using. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a great it's a great question as well. And this is kind of the fundamental structure of the law. You know, it's an adversarial system. And I, and I really do believe in the adversarial system. So it's not cooperative, right? The defense and the prosecutor, they're not going to be working together to try to come to an 
to to an amicable outcome generally. Now, there are plea deals, right? And there are deals. Not every case goes to trial. In fact, most cases don't go to trial. Rittenhouse was kind of an exception. Chauvin was kind of an exception. Most, I think, jurisdictions, you'll see about one to three to percent, three percent of cases actually go to a criminal trial. The the others take plea deals when that means that the defense and the prosecution come to an arrangement, you know, and they say, we'll take this penalty if you plead guilty to these charges. But in these other situations, I mean, it's a sport, you know, it's like blood sport. That's why they call it practicing law. Sometimes lawyers get totally steamrolled. Sometimes mm-hmm. lawyers do the steamrolling. Mm-hmm. And I think in in the Rittenhouse case, I don't remember specifically what the question was. I, I, I think I looked it up. I think he made a mention in a question that he refused to speak to police or something like okay. that. Okay, yeah. It, yeah it, okay. It, 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 I, to me, I was like, I never would have thought that was anything other than just a point. And then the judge got mad and defense got mad. That was like a whole yeah. thing. I'm like, dang, I never, I never in a million years, I thought it was a fair question. I had no idea. So um, that yeah. was the question. Yeah. So he was commenting on his right to remain silent, you know, and you do have that right. And that right can't be used against you. You hear that also in the, in the TV shows, right? You have a right to remain silent. Anything uh-huh. you say or do can will be used against you in the court of law. And if you invoke that right, they can't comment on that and say, well, he could have talk to us, but he didn't. He invoked his right. He's guilty, right? Somebody mm-hmm. who's silent never would, uh, you know, if you, if, you were, if you were innocent, you wouldn't stay silent, that type of defense. And so when you comment on that, you know, in, in front of the jury, mm-hmm. when you bring that out and what, I think that was uh, Thomas Binger or maybe yeah. it was the other guy. I think it was Binger, yeah. Yeah, it was Binger who brought it up, right? He's an experienced prosecutor. He knows that's like rule 101. You can't comment on mm-hmm. a defendant's silence if they're mm-hmm. invoking their silence. And so he he was commenting on that as part of, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse has that right. He did that and Binger called it out. So, you know, a, a, an example like that, I think, was a little bit beyond just an innocent mistake. I mean, in that trial, I, I saw a lot of Binger really pushing the envelope there. And I thought mm-hmm. I thought a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. And the judge scolded him. Right. The judge said, remember that that clip, don't get brazen with me. And he was right. screaming at him a bit. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of fun to sort of watch the judge keep control. But that doesn't always happen, right? There are, are often situations where the judge just kind of lets the prosecutor just get away with whatever they can get away with. And if you don't have a good defense attorney who's sitting there ready to scream from the table, objection, right? It, it just goes over. And yeah. maybe Binger does get to comment on all of that stuff. And it turns into a prejudicial mm-hmm. statement that w- went out to the jurors. Yeah. So, okay. So you agree that it was a gross overstep because again, I, I had like when he, when he, I was kind of halfway watching and I was like, yeah. okay, I had no idea. I had to back it up. Let's do it. I'm like, again, non-lawyer here, high school graduate. Don't, don't, don't get all the nuance. My my first thought was regardless of what I think of Rittenhouse's innocent or guilt, if he did this violate it, it seems that we should just stop the trial to show the DA, you can't act like this ever again, perhaps disbar him if we wanted to really kick him in the teeth. But I mean, to me, that's the only way we talk about going back to the protecting liberties. That's the only way you protect liberties is you show And if the defense did something similar on what it would be, you do the same thing. You can't obviously convict the, 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 the defendant, but kick him off the case to the bar. What should the repercussions for those type of gross oversteps be prosecutor or defense? I don't really care either way. Yeah, it's well, the repercussions, I think, are relative to the offense and. Yeah, typically, these are governed by licensing agencies. So, you know, you state bars and a lot of, you know, a lot of this is sort of, it's kind of like playground rules a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these, these people 
practice out of this court regularly. So this prosecutor is assigned to that county. And so he's very likely, right? He's there all the time. That's his day job. So he's going to be in that county. He's going to be in that courtroom very regularly. And so, you, you know, it's it's sort of self-policing in many ways, right? The, the, the legal profession, everybody talks about each other. He's going to have to go back into that judge's courtroom again. And if you develop a bad reputation, you're going to get bad outcomes. You're going to have a pretty terrible time practicing law. Everybody's going to hate you, right? So you, you try to sort of play by the rules. You try to be a good sport and, you know, be a, be a good team player, like, like literally a good sport, right? If you're playing a sport, you don't want to play against a sore loser or somebody who is sort of slowly breaking the rules from time to time. And so there's self-policing there. And that corrects a lot of things. Judges correct a lot of things. Judge, uh, judges can always issue what are called orders to show cause, you know, so call a lawyer back in, you're being bad, mm-hmm. do this better. <laughs> We've got sanctions where they can penalize you, you know, make the government pay a fine or something like this. But your point is right. You know, how, when, when there are egregious oversteps, somebody at that point has to decide what is the appropriate penalty. One of them, right. Once it gets to sort of the level where it leaves the self-regulated self-policing playground and goes over into the state bar, you can have judges who file state bar uh, complaints. You can have other lawyers who file, you can have civilians, you know, citizens, clients who file, bar complaints. And then the state bar will listen to it. They'll weigh it. Sometimes they'll call Mm -hmm. hearings in and they'll have you present your evidence. Both sides will make their argument. But, you know, he's a prosecutor. Prosecutors, I think, get a lot of extra love, in my humble opinion, from the state bar. You're not biased. I'm not biased at all. No, of course. (laughs) But I think they get a little bit of extra love, you know, because I'm sure they get a lot of complaints. I'm sure a lot of, you know, criminal defendants are complaining against them and stuff. But the state bar could certainly take a look at it. And lawyers are disbarred all the time. They're disbarred all, you know, regularly. Usually it's not for something like what Binger did. I mean, unless he did it repeatedly and, mm-hmm. and, and egregiously over and over. I think, I think judges and the legal system will give people like, they want you to be adversarial. They want you to go and try to win. They want you to sort of push the line a little bit, right? Because it's, a, it, these are important cases. This is somebody's livelihood. Absolutely. Like give it your all, right? Yeah. We know emotions are high. We know these are tense situations like this isn't a game of patty cake. So if somebody, you know, crosses a little bit, OK, we give them a little bit of leeway there. But when there are egregious violations, you know, there are there have been there was a major prosecutor in Arizona who got uh, disbarred for, you know, all like re- repetitious, egregious behavior. Oftentimes these involve money. They they involve, you know, questions with colleagues of certain, mm-hmm. you know, nature and, you know, touching and stuff like that. So. It kind of just depends on what the what the violation was. Binger, man, he got awfully close. I didn't like watching or listening to him. I thought he was prosecuting a case with with a little bit too much enthusiasm for a case that didn't merit it. Mm. But I don't know that it was something that merited him being disbarred or something like that. Uh, listen, you're, you're the lawyer. I, I'm not. I, I can go. I can go hyperbolic here. Okay. <laughs> it's, sure. Sure. This will be played at my criminal defense trial. Don't worry. <laughs> this. Um, I do think that we should push for more courtrooms uh, to have cameras in them because it, it helps everyone understand this, just kind of how mundane a lot of this stuff is. Eh? But then just to be familiar with the objections and why they're this way or that, that way. But where I think we're potentially heading going um, is using AI to listen to, read all of these court cases, transcripts, and find 
these potential violations that were overlooked, especially from a criminal defense standpoint, looking for um, um, ways to appeal. And so I, I do have hope that some of this can get corrected as we get more exposure to it. It's like the video camera. You get more exposure to it. You kind of see how nasty it is. Like, oh, my gosh. But then you can start to think about how to fix it. So I, I do have hope that we are probably trending in the long run in the right direction. Yeah. I'm not sure what AI is going to do, but it's going to change it, the whole game dramatically. Mm -hmm. I have no doubt about it. I don't know how, exactly how it's going to end up, but I do think it is going to be a big deal. I think you're right about courtroom video. You know, currently we have seen some video from like Rittenhouse, from Chauvin. Those were state court level cases, which means we got video. Some other cases we have not that are state court levels, but it's still pretty amazing that our entire federal court system does not allow cameras in any mm -hmm. of the federal courts, which is kind of crazy, right? We don't get to see any Supreme Court arguments. We don't get to see any, like, you know, the Glenn Maxwell trial was yeah. out of the Southern District of New York. Wait, that trial see... actually happened? They did that? Trial happened. <laughs> yeah, trial happened. Now, nobody else got prosecuted, you know. <laughs> you know, it, 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 the whole thing was just kind of buried, right? I mean, we didn't see mm -hmm. much of it because it's all taking place under the dark of night. I think that's a big problem. I'd like to see much more of this because this involves oftentimes these trials and these investigations, at least involve mm -hmm. some of our elected officials and the people mm -hmm. who are running things. And so we should be able to see it and unpack it. The AI mm -hmm. thing, I think will add a lot of flavor to that conversation. I don't know. I don't know exactly how, how it will interface with different, different uh, industries in the law. So I think there's a book called the end of lawyers from some time ago, Mm -hmm. that we talked about in law school. I don't remember if that's the title of it long time ago, but they talked about this, right? How many times do we see these new companies pop up like a legal zoom or something, you know, that does automation for contracts or wills or trusts and estates and all of that stuff. And now with this new chat GPT, mm. you know, what is that going to do? There was a, there was another, I think software company that actually has a model, a working model already. Mm. And they were going to try to test it in a court. They, they were, it's just an app on your phone yeah. and they were going to actually test it, bring it into court and, and have the app feed that data back to the defendant who is there for a traffic case mm -hmm. and that they were going to do it. I was following them along on Twitter and they got, I think, contacted by the state bar probably. And they canceled the whole endeavor mm -hmm. because that's sort of practicing law without a license. And they were all going to be under investigation for that. So the licensing boards are going to fight hard over this, right? The, the, the government is going to fight hard. You know, there's a lot of lawyers who are going to be technology averse. And I mean, I, I know lawyers who still have paper files, right. Who still don't even, you know, don't even have anything in the cloud and stuff. So we'll see. It's going to be the legal industry always feels like it's 15, 20 years behind everybody else. But, mm -hmm. you know, with AI and this stuff, it might just become inevitable. Well, we can do another three or four podcasts on licensing boards if you want. Um, yeah, no <laughs> but doubt. But no, I had on Bruce uh, Shiner the other day, and, and he was. I, I asked him, could um, he's kind of a you know expert in all this stuff, and I said, you know, could could AI, um, theoretically, you give the, the we'll call it Chat GPT or whatever, said, hey, go listen to read and listen whatever the term is to every interview on Coca Cola ever done. Go read all the purchase orders and construct the recipe for Coca Cola. And he goes, yeah, theoretically, quite good. If there's enough information out there, it could do that. And so sure. with legal, you could say the same thing, which is go listen to, go read the the court reports, the transcripts, whatever they are, of all the trials ever done, ever recorded, and start to look for 
uh, prosecutor, uh, prosecution misconduct, or, or whatever it might be, a misobjections. And so that would be, to me, and, and based upon where he says we're at with the AI um, stuff, we're not going to advance largely in the next 10 years. So we're, this is kind of where we're at for the next little while. That would be something that would be important is going and looking for cases to where, you know, maybe an objection was missed or or whatever. Um, but yeah. Beyond that, who, you know, who knows? Cause I don't, I don't want a bot arguing for a court case. I think that's kind of scary. <laughs> I'm not in favor of that for sure, but, but having them do to database this stuff. Um, and maybe there is yes. something like this, like the, like the Binger guy, where is he weak at? You know, where is, where, what, what kind of questions is he normally asking and get the kind of data um, to help a defense or, or a prosecution to, to go to battle as it were. Yeah. There's a lot of, room for i think maturity in that space you know there's there's a lot of this technology that sort of already exists the insurance companies it, they have this software or they used to have this software i don't practice in personal injury but it's called colossus or it was called colossus mm-hmm. and it's this idea that uh, all the insurance companies will share data about all of the claims that they receive and that they settle okay so if you have one person who has a bunch of claims with multiple different insurance companies, all of the insurance companies want to know so they know not to pay that person out so that they can save more money, right? And increase their, their profits. So in other words, they're sharing data and they, they aggregate that data and it helps them to give people much lower offers than they would otherwise, right? And so that's one way that sure. the, 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 the legal space is using it. But you know, I'm a defense attorney and I've had this vision for just uploading a police report you know, a written police report, police write reports. They just, oh, uh, so-and-so was leaving, made a turn here, this time, this date, this location, upload the whole thing. And you could just have the the language model just sort of deconstruct that and say, okay, well, the officer missed this, missed that. They didn't look for this, right? Here, what the, the procedural manuals say for this agency, and they're supposed to do it this way. They didn't do it this way. And you know, uh, for a horizontal gaze nystagmus, they they said they did it at 45 degrees angles, but, you know, they didn't hear it. And boom, this whole thing could spit out a report instantly. And that doesn't necessarily translate over to, you know, arguing in court, but you give mm-hmm. that to a competent defense lawyer and you just cut down on the research time of that lawyer from, you know, having to read all this stuff and go investigate mm-hmm. a bunch of cases and all of that from 10 hours into a minute, you know, mm-hmm. and what that can do is you know is a game changer so the prosecutors will have that right i think the fbi is going to have that i think the doj is going to have a lot of these capabilities and so what are the defense attorneys going to do when the government has you know these uh defense attorneys are already at a major disadvantage i mean we're up against trillion dollar institutions you know how much billion how many billions have been invested in the fbi and the Mm -hmm. doj and all of these entities for years years decades and then, you know, you've got these innocent defendants who are just sort of, you know, it's a David versus Goliath situation. And I think it's only going to get worse as they level up their technology. Okay. Shoot me straight here. If yeah. I get booked for something, what's my chances of winning pro se? Well, it depends. I mean, it depends what you get booked for and it depends on what the arguments you know you want to make let me give you a good example so yesterday on our show we talked maybe about... unpack let's unpack the term real quick for what that means and, and how that works just for people who aren't familiar they're not legal buffs like you like you like me obviously so if you get charged with a crime you're asking how do you how do you win how do you not get convicted if i, or, if or I want to defend myself if you want to defend yourself yeah. Yeah, yeah so so one like let me give you one technique okay so there was a case that we covered yesterday his name is william pope he is a pro se defendant and he is 
uh, representing himself out of the D.C. Circuit Court. He is a J6 defendant, and he fired, I think, several of his lawyers multiple times, and he is now representing himself. And he put together a very good motion yesterday. I thought it was great. We read it on the show. And he was saying, you know, he's using, if you have a defense attorney in the January 6th cases, and the defense attorney files a motion that says, uh, Your Honor, I'm a defense attorney. The law says under the rules of criminal procedure, I'm entitled to X, Y, and Z. Prosecutors say, well, our interpretation of X, Y, and Z and this rule says the following. Thus far, the judges have been, have been siding with the prosecutors and finding that the defense doesn't get access to all of this additional discovery. In this case, 41,000 hours of video plus 4.2 million documents and so on, right? Massive troves of data. The government is saying, Defense attorneys, you're not entitled to it based on the rules. William Pope files a motion. He says, I don't have a defense attorney. I'm not entitled. I don't have a defense attorney, so I don't have to follow those rules. So he goes back through the rules of criminal procedure and he says, well, here is this rule that says that the court, okay, not the prosecution, the court has an obligation to help me make sure that I get my discovery so that there's not a due process violation. All right. So in this case, you have one situation where a person representing themselves has an additional argument that you don't have in a case where he's represented by a lawyer. All Which right. is pretty sorry for being honest, right? If I mean that that that, you, that that there's some kind of rule that you can give it, you can't give it to the defense attorney, but you can give it to him. Like that, that's that's just pretty sorry. Yeah. So yeah, I get you're, you're basically the court is deferring responsibility when you have a lawyer the court saying well that's not our problem anymore it's the defense lawyer's problem and mm -hmm. they give the the attorney the the, the the responsibility to the defense attorney if you as a defendant gets the ball dropped because of your defense attorney that's on them right mm -hmm. sucks sucks to be you as a defendant your your attorney screwed up not the court but if you don't have a lawyer then the court has to take a little bit more of that responsibility and ensure that things are done a little bit more by the book so uh, i don't know that it's going to work out for him or not but it is it was a great argument. I thought it was a very sure. interesting argument and I can see what his tactic is. And that's something that his lawyer wouldn't have been able to file. But if he, if he gets this documentation, the videos, whatever, can he then hire his lawyer back? Or is now that only, then that's what I'm saying. Like to me, that's where it's like, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's crazy because if he's prevented from hiring a lawyer to use this evidence, then he hasn't really advanced his case any. Yeah, so he certainly could. He could always hire a lawyer back. It's not unusual for lawyers to sort of come and go. You know, I, I, I've been on, I've been hired on many cases where I wasn't the first lawyer and fired off cases where, you know, I wasn't the last <laughs> lawyer. So it's, it's not unusual. Um, I don't know that he's, you know, strategizing this way. So I don't know if that's his plan, you know, to sort of bring a lawyer back on. But certainly I would say, you know, before a trial, before a criminal trial, would go forward. It would be very, very good to have, you know, a lawyer, a competent lawyer. But, but, you know, my understanding is also from reading his motion that he's, he doesn't have a lot of faith in the, the attorneys that he's getting, that they're going to fight for him and they don't believe in him. They just kind of whatever, you know, take the plea deal. And if he's in the DC circuit jurisdiction and there are no lawyers who will represent him, right. He's, he's also in a difficult position, right. You know, and this is another thing that's becoming more difficult back to the licensing boards is they're starting to sort of make this move that lawyers who, you know, represented Trump or represented anybody who was filing any election litigation cases should have their license removed because they are, you know, contributing to insurrection or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is going to be a difficult, I think, a, a new difficult front doctors who who challenge the status quo during the pandemic or, or mm -hmm. under scrutiny. 
lawyers who are involved in election litigation, same thing as, you know, the war heats up, critics of the war and so on. I think that, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a new a new uh, new era mm. in this game. So before you started your show, you, you might have covered these cases on the show, but the Amber Geiger case in Dallas, did you happen to cover that one? The cop did not. OK, so that I'm about 45 minutes south of Fort Worth. Okay. So you have the Amber Geiger story happens. We're like, oh, my gosh, what's happening here? And then within, I'm going to say a few weeks, month, it, it seems pretty close. You can go back in history and look. Um, there was a cop in Fort Worth who shot a lady in her home on a well check. Um, he was outside. He shot her inside her house. Um, and the Amber Geiger story blew up. And this story over here got no attention. The Geiger story was weird when it first happened. You're trying to figure out what, you know, what's going on. And, of course, the court case revealed a lot of other stuff. But, but this was more egregious. The cops were called for a well check, and they shoot the lady from the outside, inside her house, after they passed an open door essentially, and didn't, and, and so, and that if they finally got him um, for I don't know, manslaughter, murder a few weeks ago. The reason I bring this up is here are two cases, both where cops fire and kill people. One gets huge national media attention; the other, I think, may have got a, a little attention at the recent trial, but by and large, got none. One is clearly more egregious than the other. One's a well checkup. You kill a person. One's terrible, mistaken room, et cetera. How do you go about trying to figure out which stories to cover so that there is more of a balance of what's really going on? Um, because they're not all bad cops. They're all good cops. I mean, they're, they're hard to decipher, but they don't all get the same attention. So how do you pick that? Well, I mean, the truth of the matter is I, you know, a part of what we cover follows the clicks, follows the headlines, follows the big stories. You know, I, I try to cover things that I think will be useful for the conversation. So I try not to join dog piles when the dog piles are going on. I like to pick stories that sort of have the underdog in place. So like with Derek Chauvin, I thought he was the underdog big time and I thought he deserved a defense. And so we took that story and took that angle and covered it from a defense attorney perspective. It was unusual for me at the time. It might sound obvious now, but back at the time before Derek Chauvin, there wasn't, there wasn't sort of an all cops are bad movement. They just didn't exist. There was nothing like that around. And the pendulum, as I had talked about at the start of our conversation was all on the one side, nobody was talking about defund the police at all. That was all a consequence of George Floyd. So, you know, when I when I was defending Derek Chauvin, it was a big change for my channel because I had previously been sort of beating up on the cops. I actually used to hold mugshots up of cops on my channel and say, this cop got arrested for doing this thing or this cop did a bad thing. I call him bad popo, you know, and we had a whole segment on that. So for me, sort of turning around and defending Derek Chauvin, it was kind of a big uh, an about face. To, to say that, but it was because it was about, you know, presumption of innocence and reasonable doubt and all of those things. So, you know, nowadays I try to use the same framework. I do, mm -hmm. I do try to follow the topical stuff and offer a contrarian take. There are other stories that I think deserve way more attention. Like right now, well, m many of the J six stories, which is why we talked about William Pope yesterday, which I think are, you know, sort of egregious uh, overstepping of constitutional norms we're talking about the Arizona rancher who is being charged with murder for allegedly shooting somebody. The evidence is extremely weak on that here in uh, the southern southern Arizona. And so, you know, a lot of these stories, I think, are important criminal defense stories. They are topical. I try to highlight the stuff where I think there are injustices, where there's a dog pile going on one direction. And, 
you know, support those those standards, support those lines. And we also cover, cover other stories where there's a double standard, you know, where Galen Maxwell is prosecuted and she's made the scapegoat. But all the other hundred people who used her sure. services are still roaming around free or, exactly. you know, Alec Baldwin is a guy who is free out on bail. He's roaming around. But the Arizona rancher is in custody on a million dollar bond. Right. Both mm-hmm. both of them allegedly shot and killed somebody, but he's roaming free. The other guy's not. So, you know, we try to try to talk about those things just so people have a, a little bit better understanding of what's going on. And um, we're trying to you know, we're trying to make some impact and improve the justice system by shining what we call our giant spotlight down on it and illustrating what's really going on. Well, I appreciate the work you do. I enjoy it. Um, I think in an age that when you turn on the true crime stuff, it's over, overly sensationalized, you know, trying to, it doesn't mean that you and I would agree on every ruling or every case. That's, that's not the goal. The goal is to try to get us to agree on what we think the set of rules and morals and principles should be for the cases. If we can agree there, Right. Then we can start making progress. If we can't agree there, then it's just the case, the case and the, the 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 elements of the case dictate how we come into it instead of saying, hmm, no, this is what I believe. And what you find, at least for me, is is that there's sometimes where you look at like the Amber Geiger thing and it's it's hard for me to go, she shouldn't get something, but also I'll go, dang, it is a freak deal. But then you know, and so sometimes you walk away going, I, I don't really have an opinion. I don't, I don't know. I'm I'm torn. I can see so many parts of this. And there's other cases that are that are quite clear. Um, we've kind of lost that. Just talk about the 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 right. the ethics behind the issue, if you will. And that's to me the concerning things. And I, I like the way that you guys handle that on your program. So we're going to link to the YouTube channel. Um, you're also are you still on locals? Yeah, still on locals. So, a lot of fun we'll, there as well. We'll drop the locals on there. Anywhere else you want us to send people to? No, that's great. YouTube locals would be the best places to follow us. We live stream every day during the week, so we'd love to have you stop by. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Ryan. Really enjoyed talking to you. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.